Hello and welcome to this special episode of A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely and as always you can find us on social media at A World to Win pod, on Patreon at patreon.com slash A World to Win pod and across all podcast platforms. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode where we'll be discussing the legacy of my friend, the academic, activist and anarchist legend David Graeber, who tragically died last week at the age of 59. Today I'm going to be talking to three people who are close with David, both intellectually and personally. Astra Taylor is an activist, musician, documentary filmmaker and founder of The Debt Collective. The collective's forthcoming book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, is out this year with a foreword from Astra. Jerome Roos is a fellow in international political economy at the London School of Economics, founder of Raw magazine and author of Why Not Default, The Politics of Sovereign Debt. James Schneider was Jeremy Corbyn's spokesperson and head of strategic communications, a co-founder of Momentum, and is now Progressive International's communications director. Each of my guests has been profoundly influenced by David's thinking and by his friendship, and we're privileged that they're sharing their memories of him with us today. I also hope you enjoy the carefully selected clips of David speaking at various lectures and public meetings, and I'd encourage you to watch the clips in full on YouTube after this podcast. Rather than asking you to become a patron of A World to Win this week, we'd like to ask you to consider supporting David and his wife Nika's Patreon, which they set up to raise money for their new book series called Anthropology for All. Nika is planning on using the money to set up a memorial foundation in David's name that can be used to pursue all the many projects that he didn't quite have time to complete. We'll post a link in the description. Thank you. Now, what they have done over the last 200 years is figure out a way, A, to take these institutions which were basically created to stop democracy and convince everybody they are democracy, and B, to like um, get people more and more involved in the system, since uh, gradually they did expand it to one man, one vote, and still somehow not have them do the thing everybody was afraid that they were going to do in the beginning, which is expropriate the wealth. Hello, Astra Taylor, and thank you so much for being with me today on A World to Win, on this special episode of A World to Win, to discuss the legacy of our friend, the amazing David Graeber. Now, you know, you've known David for for quite a while now. Can you tell us a bit about how you met and also your mutual involvement in uh, the very early days of Occupy Wall Street? David was someone I knew about for a while before I met him. In fact, the writer Rebecca Solnit actually bought me a little copy of his book, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, and inscribed in it and just thought that this was a book that I would really appreciate. So he, his reputation preceded him. And we had a lot of friends in common, friends who had been part of the global justice movement and the direct action scene. So following the famous battle in Seattle, all the campaigns against the WTO, the IMF, um, which I, I had sort of missed out on. I was a bit um, younger than those people. And so you know, to me, it was this this moment I had missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so David and I were set up by a mutual friend to just get together and have coffee. Someone just thought we'd hit it off and, and get along. And we did immediately. And it was this sort of recognition that we're you know, part of this, a similar community, but also a mutual intellectualism, nerdiness, but also this conviction that you have to live your values. And I think that's where my biggest kinship with anarchism is. I mean, I've I've never called myself an anarchist. I always wanted a socialist movement to 
be on the upswing in, in the United States, but I have this sense that these values are meant to be put into practice mm-hmm. and that that dialectic has to be there of thinking and action and that it is, it is by trying to manifest people power that we actually learn and we hone our critique and we hone our strategies and we actually see if we're on the right path. And I think David profoundly uh, embodied that as well. I mean, just this sense of creativity, a desire to collaborate, and a real sense that there were these other modes of learning and um, and play that he he could only access collaboratively with other people. And so that, I think, was something that really, you know, that really bonded us was like, oh, let's, yeah, let's dig into the archive. Let's nerd out, but also let's try to do something and make some trouble. That brings me very nicely onto my next question, which was that, you know, unlike a lot of academics, David was someone who really successfully trod that line between academia and activism. He was really an example of someone who was, you know, attempting to understand the world in order to change it. And, you know, he didn't see his thinking as separate from his activism. So, you know, how do you think that could be an example for both academics and activists today? And why do you think David was so good at it? Mm. I mean, I th- as leftists, I guess, I guess to me, I just feel like it should be the baseline, right? That, you know, we, we all have that Marx's, that Marxist line, right? The point isn't just to analyze the world, it's to transform it. What is the, what is the actual quote? I'm blanking on it right now. Um, it, yeah, it's... Um, uh, uh, philosophers have only attempted to understand yeah. the world. The point, however, is to change it. Yeah, exactly. So we 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 latch onto this idea. Oh, the point is to change it. But then you know, very few people really, really do it. I mean, in a deep and sustained way. And and so one thing about David was that even though he was so fucking bright, and the guy was bright. I mean, his mm. scholarship was amazing. He had an incredible breadth of knowledge, but he really believed there were just, there were these things that only the collective could figure out, you know, and that in that sense, it wasn't just about getting the smartest guys in the room. I mean, he thought that attitude was destroying the world, right? I mean, the smartest mm. guys in the room had led to the war in Iraq and the financial crisis and you know, the destruction of the climate. So he's like, hey, let's try something different. Let's all think and figure this out. So he really, when you're in meetings with David, you could feel his conviction that if we just gave it some time and we all, you know, were able to to speak freely and to uh, riff on ideas, and if we were willing to have a bit of a kind of mischievous spirit and try to actually do th- something wild, like something really powerful might happen. And so, you know, his whole mantra, and this was his his anarchist sort of motto was, you need to act like you're already free. And what happens when you do that, even if it's just in these, you know, in between spaces in your life? And when you think about where that got David, it's pretty impressive. I think you can make the case that Occupy Wall Street would not have happened without David Graeber. And that put class on the public agenda in this country in a way it had not been in my entire life. I mean, for that alone, I am so grateful because this country is so demented and nobody was talking about class. So, you know, Occupy opened the space for other social movements and and has been this sort of genie that the powerful have not been able to totally put back in the bottle. 
Uh, and so his ideas, you know, this this sense of openness to collective experimentation, you know, maybe sometimes it fizzles out and then, you know, but sometimes it sparks something really incredible. Um, the other thing that he had was, so there's sort of two things about David, or maybe a few things about David in social movements that really stand out. One is just how much he loved direct action. I mean, so yeah. many of our friends have stories about David on the front lines, you know, um, like battling the police and just the kind of thrill he got from that. So he did love that kind of rebellious, uh, revolutionary kind of energy. The other thing, though, is, you know, there's the other part of organizing, which is which is the endless meeting <laughs> part of organizing. And this, you know, not everything is in the streets and full of adrenaline. Sometimes you're on hour seven of a consensus meeting and, you know, it's just absolutely mind numbing. And David could sit in those with such patience and generosity. And he could really listen to the other people in the room. And, you know, just everyone has a story like this. Everyone who's organized with him of just how unassuming, how humble he was and how um, sort of much, again, much, how much faith he had in the collective to, to figure things out. And so he really would engage as a peer. He really would engage as an equal, even with somebody who is brand new to the movement. And I think that was that was a really um, powerful trait of his that I think if we, if we say we're egalitarians, you know, we say we're socialists, <laughs> we kind mm. of have to try to, to um, we have to try to be in that space a little bit more as well. And David's a really a, a great example of that. Um, I don't know. And then this other, you know, his other, another phrase that's been coming to a lot of us, I think was, you know, David, well, he had this, he had this line that capitalism dominates, but capitalism does not pervade. Have you heard that one in your, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that was it, you know, I would have these conversations too with David where I would accuse him of being too idealistic and you know, having faith in the consensus decision-making structures that I saw as dysfunctional or, you know, saying, hold on, we're supposed to be changing the world, but we're so broken. <laughs> you know, our community is full of problems and petty grievances. And, and David, David, you know, I think sort of two things that, that I, I take away from him. One, he would say, well, look at all of this cooperation, right? Capitalism um, dominates, but it doesn't pervade. There's all of this hidden com communistic behavior, right? All of the ways that we're kind to each other, all the ways we help our neighbors. So that was very, um, I think that's very powerful to remember that we're building on, we're building on behaviors and attitudes that are actually already here, right? And, and to remember all the work that's done into um, making us not see them, all of the ideological work that's that's done to tell us, oh, no, that's not how people are. So he calls attention to sort of actually existing communism, the the kindness and the cooperation and the solidarity and mutual aid that's in everyday relationships. But then on the other side, he would also say, OK, so there's some problems with your activist group. There's some petty behavior. There's some egos. There's some hatreds and passions. He's like, that's what human society is. And that's where him as an anthropologist would come in. He'd be like, look, <laughs> you know, this is what people all over the world have to deal with. Sometimes you're in a meeting with the guy who stole your girlfriend and like, I, you know, that's life. And so that was always, it was like, just Gail always gave me this jolt, right? It's like, yeah, why am I, why am I, um, why am I like sort of 
being brought down by just, you know, basic human behavior. I mean, the the socialist paradise I want to see is still one where there'd be lots of there'd be lots of human drama. Um, there just hopefully wouldn't be exploitation. I mean, you put that so well, like the his combination of just patience and playfulness. I remember speaking to him um, like literally, I think it was like the day after or a couple of days after the election loss in December. And he just, I, he just texted me and he didn't even bring it up. He like, uh, I think he asked me something about like, we, we he wanted to go to some sort of thing um, uh, with, with me and some other people. And his kind of just perennial optimism was so delightful in the context of, you know, that period where basically like me and everyone else were just sitting at home being completely and utterly depressed. But I suppose part of that comes from what you were saying is that he's always been one of those people who's been saying way before it was fashionable, you know, the left can't just be putting all of its eggs into the basket of electoral politics. Obviously, he wouldn't be saying that. He was literally an anarchist. Um, so, yeah, I guess in in the context of those defeats and the pessimism that I think is present in a lot of quarters at the moment, completely understandably, given the challenges that we're going through at the moment. What do you think, and this is a hard question, but what do you think David's message for us would be today? What do you think he should be saying we should we should be doing? How do you think mm. he think he would think we should be organizing? David thought in thousand year chunks. So <laughs> there's a brilliant reminder at at the end of his book, Debt, and um, it's it's emphasized in the, I think it's in the afterword or in one of the concluding sections. And that book is structured in these broad swaths of history. So it's the actual, sorry, it's, you know, that book is structured in these broad swaths. So the book is structured in chapters that are like the Axial Age or, um, you know, uh, histories of sort of ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Greece and ancient Rome and these debt re resistance movements through time. And then the final chapter is neoliberalism, 1971 mm. to the present, right? So what, less than half a century. And so I, I guess what I'm feeling is I also am haunted by the sense of despair and disappointment and, and fear about the way things might be heading so that, you know, we're We've entered this new economic paradigm, one you've written really eloquently and brilliantly about, call it financialization, call it neoliberalism, a, a new stage of capitalist development, you know, and, and we're just getting started. We're just beginning to uh, respond to this new way of organizing the economy. And, and you know, that, if, if we take that broader view, then the game is not over. And, you know, we all know, and David knew too, that there's unique challenges to this moment, especially the, the problem of um, impending climate catastrophe. It's not even impending. It's here right now as, you know, California burns. But I think, I think there's something to that of having, I think, having this long perspective. I mean, David was an anthropologist and not a historian, but his work spanned time and space in this incredible way. And I, I do believe that this trait that we all call sort of utopianism, this trait in his work and in his being was rooted in that because on the one hand, you know, you realize like this moment isn't it. 
this moment is part of a yeah. much longer story. And also when you look at human history in that way and you, you span the globe, then you see that there are indeed all of these other ways of organizing human societies and organizing human values. And you know, also even powerful societies tend not to last that long. They too crumble. And so, you know, whether we like it or not, things are going to be different. So I, I think that um that would be one of David's messages. I think the other thing that he would do, you know, he wasn't prescriptive. He was a very non-dogmatic, non-sectarian person. So yes, David was famously an anarchist, but he was passionately involved in the British election last year, right? And a passionate supporter of the Labour Party. So he was very, you know, he was, he was very open-minded in terms of what tactics and strategies we have to use. And, you know, it was, I think, all about being open to the moment. So in 2019, it sure made a lot of sense to get behind Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party. That doesn't mean that we always do electoral politics mm. 100%. It's about reading, reading the times and, um, and being open to something new. I mean, I was one of the people that David tried to get to attend those early planning meetings of Occupy Wall Street. And I didn't go. <laughs> I went I went to the first day of Occupy Wall Street, but I didn't go to the planning meetings because I thought, this is harebrained. I don't think this will amount <laughs> to much. And, you know, I, I am now just like, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. You do not know what is going to light that spark. And I think the point is that, you know, we just have to keep trying and being open to new things and not um, not be unnecessarily dismissive um, because we don't we don't know what's going to pay off. And if you can tap into some of that, that playfulness, that experimentation, that willingness to learn, then the experience of even something that, you know, objectively fails can be worthwhile. It can set you on the path to the next project. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned that quote about, about capitalism um, pervading, but the one that's really been staying with me recently is the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it's something that we make and could just mm-hmm. as easily make differently. And he was just, yeah, he lived that as well. So clearly. Um, so yeah, I, you mentioned there a bit, yeah, what you were saying about, you know, you were together uh, at the early stages of Occupy Wall Street, but more recently um, you, like your, both of your work has, has centered around the politics of debt and debt resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you learned from David kind of intellectually on that topic and also now the strategies that you guys were using in the debt collective as well? Yeah, so... David opened these doors for me. It's really interesting for me to now kind of assess David's influence on my life because he had a profound influence in that he set me on the path to doing this thing, which is working on the Debt Collective, a union for debtors. And it has totally overtaken my life. And yet I never knew, I just never kind of paused to appreciate the impact he was having and the way he was sort of changing the course of my existence. Um, So David invited me to these early planning meetings of Occupy Wall Street. I didn't go, but I did show up there at Zuccotti Park that first day, September 17th, 2011. And like so many other peoples in the park, I found out that I shared the common bond of being indebted and not seeing a path towards solvency. I had just defaulted on my student loans and like so many other people of my generation, but also even more intensely people younger than me, I just felt like, wow, I'm, I'm always going to be in debt and I'm never going to 
get out of it and yeah. it's going to dictate my decisions. I'm going to not be able to do what I want to do because I have to pay off this debt. I'm never going to be able to own a house. The American dream is not, you know, a, a home in a white picket fence. It's just getting out of debt. And, you know, it was like my, my, one of our collaborators, Thomas Goki, who David really loved said that, you know, he felt that there was this, it was like a trap on his leg. That was how he experienced debt. And what David did was kind of begin to give us the key to get out of it. Mm. Um, and so David invited, um, I don't, David invited me to a planning meeting where we were working on something it was just generally about debt resistance. And then uh, we ended up in this group and it was all people that David had collected, right? So he had had facilitated this coming together of maybe, I don't know, a dozen of us that he thought would be good collaborators in a debt resistance movement. And we did something called the Rolling Jubilee where we bought and abolished debt on the secondary debt market just to show that there's this phony morality around debt, right? Debt actually gets written off all the time. The thing is that debt, the debt buyers and brokers, they won't write it off to you. They'll, they'll, they just sell it. And to also show that debt is an asset. It's a tradable commodity that someone's profiting from your indebtedness. Um, and David, I guess, I guess the thing I want to say about David in this is he had written this tome. He had written debt. <laughs> he had understood, he had analyzed 5,000 years of, debt politics and laid this conceptual groundwork. And the real thing that he gave us was a, a critique of the morality, of uh, the dominant morality of debt, which is that to be in debt almost makes you a criminal, right? And that um, we are in this situation where um, the, the, the things that we need as, as human beings just to survive are quantified and then we are, um, you know, what should be, I guess, in David's sort of anarchist formulation, what should be a, a, a society based on, you know, to each according to their ability, to each according to their needs, that we are, we should be in this arrangement where we're giving and receiving constantly because we're, you know, beings and uh, who are interdependent. Instead, we are in this system where um, there's this violent quantification of, you know, you owe this to me and now I can use violence to extract it from you. So he, he gave us this powerful critique of the, um, this false morality, this really destructive morality, but David didn't, he didn't necessarily know how to then lead a debt resistance movement in 2012 or whatever year it was. Right. So that's why he needed the rest of us. So he had written this amazing book, but he still invited everyone else into the space to brainstorm like, okay, so what do we do about it? So, so David would have these meetings and he would never refer to his text or his analysis. <laughs> like it was just almost like he was starting from square one in some way. Um, and, and that led us to, to engaging in these public education projects. So the Rolling Jubilee where we bought and abolished tens of millions of dollars of uh, overdue medical debt and payday loans. And then we all collectively wrote a book together called the Debt Resisters Operations Manual that was like this radical survival guide, how to get debt collectors off your back, how to declare bankruptcy and, and engage in strategic mm. default. And then David had to go to London for, for his job. So a smaller group of us continued and we wanted to push the vision further. And so I think one thing that we 
one epiphany we had that was very much inspired and is very much indebted to David's work, but which he hadn't really thought through was, you know, hold on, what if debtors unionize, right? Like, I think David's anarchist spirit just saw this kind of collective refusal, right? Like, if we could all just say the great big no, and just be like, hell no, I'm not going to pay. And then this, you know, and then, well, what would creditors do? It would be mayhem. Like, David would love that. But, you know, as for me, I'm like, well, that's, how do we get there, right? We have to, um, we have to organize, we have to strategize, we we have to learn, I think, from the labor movement, right, which has been creating a model of organizing that is a bit more um, down to earth and, and doable. And so that's where, you know, it's this interplay of sort of these big, these big ideas, this beautiful vision, and then actually, again, trying to do it. How do you actually put it into practice? How do you actually convince debtors who have been so beaten down with this morality of debt that how do you convince them that, you know what, it's like they shouldn't be ashamed and, and, and things could be another way. I mean, it's a, there's a real strategic um, question there. And that's what we've been trying to experiment with and figure out for the last five years now. And, and David has always been a text message or an email or a phone call away to sort of cheer us on or scheme with us or, you know, help us, um, uh, help us in the media. You know, he wants just yelled. He he wants attacked this funder for not supporting us and viciously burnt that bridge on our behalf. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. It's just you know, it's a big loss. I say how I got onto it. I consider myself something of an anthropologist, even in the world of anthropologists, because I don't really come from that kind of background. That is to say, the academic milieu, I, I was brought up in a working class family and among people who actually did stuff. And, um, you know, uh, task orientation was a big thing. Um, and my father was uh, working in printing, he was an offset photolithography, and my mother worked in garment factories for a lot of her life. So, so I'm kind of a stranger in the world, uh, the worlds which I traverse, and as a result, I mean, the whole idea of anthropology is that strangers have a certain insight that natives don't. Uh, so, one thing I kept noticing was this strange phenomena of people who are apologetic of what they do for a living, not just because they thought it was evil, some of them do, uh, but but just because they don't actually do anything. Hello, Jerome Roos. Thank you so much for joining me on this special episode of A World to Win, where we're discussing the, the legacy of the brilliant David Graeber. Um, and I want to talk to you a bit about David's intellectual legacy, which you're obviously very familiar with. Um, his bestseller, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, from reading your own writing, clearly seems to have had an influence on you. For example, in, on your recent book, um, Why Not Default?, so can you tell me a little bit about how David's thinking influenced you? Absolutely. Well, it influenced me in a very important way because I think what David had was a really unique capacity for making things that we take for granted uh, look very differently in light of his sort of uh, the, the anthropological perspective that he he, mm. he, he pursues. Um, so, so what he managed to do with the issue of debt is to really reframe the way that we understand debt um, instead of looking at it as a purely economic relation, he really began to sort of uh, construe it as a, as a moral relation and something that is profoundly steeped in a morality of 
um, um, of the debtor-creditor relationship and the and the the necessity of actually needing to repay those debts, and that for me gave really a, an important entry point to start looking at, um, at the question more specifically of sovereign debt and of state debt, um, and try to understand why it is that there is such a widespread insistence today uh, on the idea that these debts need to be repaid. So he had several best-selling books including debt, with which listeners will probably be familiar. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about his early work? Because you wrote a bit in your obituary about his dissertation, which looked at ideas surrounding magic in, Ma- in Madagascar. And like that's something that I wasn't massively familiar with, looking at his work from the perspective of political economy rather than anthropology. So can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Right. So I should warn that I'm not an anthropologist either. I, I really came to David's work uh, with debt and with his work on Occupy. That's kind of when uh, a lot of his work started converging with mine and when his activism and his scholarship both um, really assumed a lot of importance for me. Um, but what I do know is that um, w- what's very interesting about the perspective that he pursues as an anthropologist is that he seeks to sort of problematize the understanding that we have of a lot of social relations as essentially economic relations. I mean, we, mm. we take a lot of things for granted, for instance, um, about money and debt um, that we understand in purely economistic terms as if they were purely economic relations. And what he manages to do from a perspective of an anthropologist, having done this extensive field work in, in Madagascar for two years, is to really try to understand how it is that different cultures define key concepts of everyday life uh, in very different ways. And he learned, for instance, in, in, in his work in Madagascar, that concepts like authority and obligation, uh, concepts like value, had a very different meaning to people living in the central highlands of a relatively isolated rural community there, um, given the sort of historical legacy of slavery in particular, um, than, uh, than, than our understandings, right? So he saw that, that radical difference in, in the way that we define everyday concepts, and the brilliant thing that he managed to do was not to just remain a sort of passive observer of other societies, but then to try to use that lens of an anthropologist and apply it to his own society. So what he really began to do is to try to figure out why it is that we, in our late capitalist societies, define things like money and debt the way we do, and why it is that we value, for instance, certain types of work more than others, or um, you know, to interrogate really what we mean by terms such as democracy, which we throw around a lot, mm-hmm. but really don't uh, interrogate critically very much. Um, mm-hmm. So that was kind of like a unique perspective because there's not a lot of anthropologists who turn sort of their uh, methodological toolbox on their own societies and begin to investigate, you know, what it is about our own culture and our own society um, that, that that we take for granted. And, and in the process, he he really sort of sheds a light on these blind spots and these almost ideologically and deeply internalized notions that we have um, of of things that we really take for granted and that he really managed to cast in a different light. And I think that was his major contribution uh, to the public debate in in our own societies in the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we've already touched on this a little bit just with our, you know, coming to this as political economists saying we don't know anything about anthropology. But I find this really interesting because the way I I came to know David's work as well was that I was doing my African studies masters um, and looking at anthropology and then came across David's work and and debt in particular. And that's kind of what tilted me towards um, back well back towards political economy and and thinking more about about those issues. Um, And he really was just 
he had this incredible ability to do what anthropologists talk about a bit, well, have talked about a bit more in recent years, which is kind of turn the anthropological gaze back on the places that produce anthropologists, but which aren't typically subject to those um, uh, to those kinds of investigations. So he was a real master of that. And I suppose the other thing that he was fantastic at, which we've already hinted at, is that, you know, he was an anthropologist, but he wrote about political economy, about history. He was close with sociologists, historians, economists, political scientists, academics, just in a variety of disciplines. And that is something that I think a lot of academics today find it quite hard to do to kind of traverse those boundaries imposed by the academy. But he seems to have done it so easily. What do you think it was about either his work or his personality that made him so able to do that? Well, I think there's many layers that, 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 that go into that, right? So one of them is just his incredible erudition. I mean, the fact mm. that he was so widely read in such a great variety of fields that he could easily make contributions, even in something as short as the introduction to the book Debt, uh, which really touches upon sort of a wide ranging number of questions, ranging from moral philosophy to anthropology to sociology to development study, develop, um, you know, development studies, especially in relation to the sort of the debt of the third world or the, the developing countries. Um, and, and there's so many sort of themes that come up in his work. Um, that he commands with a certain degree of, 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 of comfort and, and ease. Um, it, it's really quite remarkable. There's not a lot of people who are able to, to, to really do that. So I think that's just one thing that we just have to recognize, that he was incredibly well-read and incredibly erudite in, yeah. in, in being able to do that. But I think more than that, he also had a capacity to communicate to wider audiences in a way that not many academics are capable of doing. And, um, you know, that... that again, is, is, is partly a result of his personality. So he, one thing that he always emphasized is that you have to be, as an author, you have to be kind to your reader. Mm. And that's really, I think it flows from his politics as well. It's the idea that your reader uh, is someone who has to be able to enjoy your work. So there, you know, there was always a lot of emphasis in, in his general personality uh, on, on the importance of joy and play that came out very strongly in his work, uh, but also his political commitment in the sense that he wanted to communicate to a wide audience. And he wanted to influence the way that people see and understand the world. And that made it that he wrote in such a way that his work became relevant, uh, not only to a small circle of specialists in his own field, but to a very wide readership that included both scholars in a variety of disciplines, but also uh, just people who otherwise might not read a dense academic scholarly work but who found in David Graeber's work something very exhilarating and something very new uh, that, that helped them look at the world with, with fresh eyes. And I think a final point that I think was very important in, in, in Graeber's work was that he was not afraid of asking big questions. And that is something that perhaps, you know, with a turn to postmodernism in the 1980s and 90s, especially in a discipline like anthropology, had kind of steered scholars away from engaging in, in complex debates and complex issues that have a wider resonance among a wider readership. And what David really managed to do in his book, Bullshit Jobs, or in a book like Debt, uh, was to touch upon themes that, um, that really affect people in their everyday lives. And in that sense, to uh, make his topic extremely um, evidently relevant to his readers, while at the same time being able to place them in a framework of, you know, millennia worth of history mm -hmm. and relatively profound philosophical questions. 
that then allowed him to really get a big perspective on that. And I think that his unfinished manuscript with David Wengro, uh, the archaeolog- British archaeologist, uh, is going to be absolutely monumental in that respect, because there he really applies that lens to a much wider range of history and really looks at, you know, the, the, the deep origins of inequality and uh, of human society more generally. And I think it's extremely exciting. Everyone was already looking forward to that very much. Uh, but it's absolutely tragic that he will not be around uh, when the world receives that book and um, uh, when, you know, the engagement with that will be coming in. Yeah, I mean, on on that front of his of his legacy of how, you know, we're going to remember David's work, we're going through a period of such profound disruption for neoliberal ideology. So many things we've been told were impossible, implausible, or just hopelessly naive to demand just a few years ago, they're now being done en masse by capitalist states everywhere. Um, so the massive changes that we're seeing all around us do seem to have the capacity to help people see the world in new ways, to kind of reimagine what might and might not be possible. And that idea of like reimagining things, of challenging received wisdom was so central to David's work and the perspective that he brought to all these different questions. And I know that from previous conversations with him, he was kind of thinking about this too at the time. So how do you think this crisis is going to um, influence the way we think about two of the themes that were most central to David's work and are indeed, you know, especially the latter central to your work, which is is work and debt? Right. I think it's going to have an important influence. And actually, in the case of debt, it's going to have an enormous influence in the sense that obviously what's happening right now is a almost like a replay of what happened in 2008, but on a much larger scale. So what happened in 2008 is that there was a a major recession as a result of an excessive buildup of debt in the financial system that then with the sort of emergence of the mortgage crisis in the United States, which spread over to the the, uh, Eurozone, uh, became a huge international financial conflagration. And what states did in the process is that they assumed the burden of the financial sector and sort of you know, borrowed extensively in order to be able to bail out the banks and then shifted those debts onto the shoulders of ordinary taxpayers. And that was really sort of one of the most important mechanisms that David tried to criticize in his work, um, which is this really the socialization of the debts of the financial sector on the, on the, on the shoulders, onto the shoulders of the ordinary taxpayer. Um, that is going to be radicalized as a result of what happened with the coronavirus crisis. Um, again, there's a major recession, this one much deeper than the one of 2008. And states have had to borrow extensive sums of money in order to be able to um, essentially keep the economy going. And again, in the last 10 years, just as in the decade before 2008, there's been a huge buildup uh, towards record debt levels worldwide. So again, we're very likely to see a kind of international debt crisis emerging on the horizon with the major difference this time around that I think people are much more fed up with the type of policy response that was pursued last time around. So after 2008, um, obviously the the response of governments was to try to cut back government spending through austerity programs to force countries like Greece to repay their debts by uh, pursuing these horrendous neoliberal reforms and and fiscal uh, retrenchments. And that is precisely the type of thing that David criticized in the last cycle uh, of crises. And I think what's going to happen in the next cycle is that there are going, again, uh, there are going to emerge questions about how these resultant debts are going to be repaid. 
or if they're going to be repaid at all. And I think that one of the major contributions that David's work has made is that it has informed thinking in social movements and on the left more generally uh, about money and about debt uh, that has helped us sort of help provide us with a conceptual framework so that we can, I think, much more adequately challenge um, the necessity of repaying those debts uh, and the, the, the logic of austerity uh, that was imposed last time around. So what I really hope is that we'll be able, um, given the advances that we've made as, as social movements and as the international left over the past decade, is that we'll be able to resist that onslaught uh, in the coming years and figure out other ways to deal with that debt overhang. And mm. I think that a large part of that is going to revolve around, um, for instance, the taxation of wealth rather than or that's at least what we have to aim for, rather than further austerity measures. So mm-hmm. I think that's one area in which David's work will remain extremely relevant in, uh, in the years to come. Another one, of course, is that the very nature of work is being transformed as we speak. I mean, we're all working from home now. Uh, not all of us. Um, a lot of us are. Um, and, and that is at the same time sort of revealing a sort of cleavage in society between those type of jobs that are actually really necessary in the sense that they require people to be present, whether we are talking about care work or people working in the supermarkets or people working in hospitals, uh, people working in public transport. I mean, these are jobs that that need to uh, continue being carried on. And one of the things that David's work on uh, work uh, looked at was precisely that question is what is it that we value in different kinds of work? And why is it that we remunerate some kinds of work that can just as easily be performed from home, behind a screen, um, often so much more than the type of work where people actually put themselves at risk and actually carry out important care functions that we should value much more profoundly than than we do today. So I think that also his work on work is going to be even more relevant in light of the coronavirus crisis and in light of all the changes that are that are coming our way, because we can already see a tendency within firms, within universities, uh, within other organizations to try to reshape the way we are working. Um, so for instance, in our field in, in education, we're being forced to talk from home a lot more. Now that is inevitable in, in the context of the pandemic, but it does raise all kinds of complex questions about um, you know, how, how does education work? Uh, what kind of work is valued uh, inside a university. And I think all these types of questions were questions that David tried to grapple with in his own writings. And they're going to be even more relevant moving forward. During Occupy Wall Street, we had this webpage called the We Are the 99% where people could um, talk about their life situation and why they supported the occupations. You know, 80% of them were women, and even the men were almost always in caring professions. They were, or they were teachers, or they were, you know, just doing social work of some kind, or they were in medicine. But they all had the same complaint. I want to do a job which actually where I care for other people and benefit them in some way. But if you want to do that, they'll pay you so little that you're in such debt you can't take care of your own family. So I I almost thought of this movement as the revolt of the caring classes. Hi, James, and thank you for joining me on this special episode of A World to Win, where we're talking about the legacy of our friend David Graeber. Now, the first thing I want to ask you is how you guys actually got to know each other. I suppose I kind of, in a nice way, intellectually stalked David. Um, uh, I read... Uh, Debt was the first time I came into contact with his work, I think, which would have been in about 2011. And I was 
I mean, like almost everybody reading it, completely bowled over and mesmerised. It was the most phenomenal work, and I, I, you know, became quite obsessed. And I ended up reading everything that I could get my hands on that he'd previously written. Uh, you know, he'd he'd already written, I think, three, probably three books by then, but also lots of fantastic articles and essays, and watching YouTube videos and lectures, and and <clears throat> and so on. I learned a you know a huge amount about things that I hadn't really uh, learned about at all. And then when he he was in the UK and he moved from I think it was when he moved from Goldsmiths to LSE, and I worked you know not that close to LSE but sort of close enough that um, you know I could sort of basically dip out of work occasionally. And I think he had these lectures seminars um, in a sort of upstairs room in in LSE in the kind of mid to late afternoon so I would occasionally basically steal myself a bit of education and um, go and do that so I sort of started to you know chat to him a bit through that and then seeing him speak at, at other things and you know he was just a very um, he was just a really friendly he, he he wasn't looking around for the the biggest name in the room if you wanted to come and talk to him about something and, and you found something interesting he was sort of like endlessly fascinated by things so he was actually it was actually very approachable. So I got to know him a bit through that and then um, started talking to him at, at some point in the 2015 Corbyn leadership campaign um, because he was, you know, he was interested in what this meant and what, the, what these possibilities are. I mean, he also had other people who were, were involved. Another one of his friends, um, uh, Joe Ryle, who he knew from kind of climate direct activism and um uh, you know climate squatting and that sort of thing um worked for John McDonald before Jeremy was uh, was leader in in setting up the people's parliament and he got David involved in that so um so it's sort of through that that I started to 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 get to know David even more and we started talking a lot and then eventually became uh you know just became friends like you know normal people going to the cinema and eating Chinese food and all of that kind of stuff. So David was obviously, as you were just saying, a really enthusiastic supporter of Jeremy. How do you think he squared that with his commitment to anarchism? Because, you know, he was obviously Jeremy was radical, but he was a democratic socialist. Yeah, well, I mean, David was David was. Yeah, he had very big ideas of how he wanted the world to be profoundly different and could be profoundly different and often based in you know things that you could see in everyday life but he he was intensely practical and he was pragmatic and he was not sectarian so I mean on the practical side I think he just thought it would be good for these people to have some power whether we were in office or otherwise because if he was involved in some direct action and he was thrown in prison or beaten up or something. You know, Jeremy Corbyn and 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 John McDonnell and so on would would um would 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 support that action, would support the movement, and that was always his thing. Was was whether politicians and those seeking state power are trying to co-opt movements or they're trying to empower movements. And I think he always saw that what John and Jeremy wanted to do, and he was very clear-eyed about it. I mean, he knew what the the Labour Party was like. He knew what trying to go into the state would mean. But he could see that John and Jeremy earnestly were trying to expand the scope of action for movements, that they would have more autonomous power 
not power that could only be articulated through the Labour Party or through the state. And he could see, you know, an alliance of interests there. It's not that he thought that everything that they wanted to do was correct, but that, you know, that was a step in the direction of the kind of um, democratic uh, democratic and free and caring society and, and world that, that he wanted. Um, and then I think there's another point, which is to do with the imagination. So, yes, um, you know, Jeremy was a democratic socialist, is a democratic socialist, John's a democratic socialist, and, and David was an anarchist. But um, in trying to reimagine value, in trying to, to, to assert a different, uh, a different ethics, a different sense of what's important and what should be valued they were on the same page. I think um, David's, how David dealt with what work really was, you know, what bullshit jobs are, but much broader than that, what care is, what human reproduction and social reproduction is about, was very similar to things that especially Jeremy would, uh, you know, was was saying publicly. Everything Jeremy would say about, uh, um, you know, who is more valuable, the... Uh, hospital cleaner or the hedge fund manager when you're in a crisis these the sort of basic assault on the idea that uh, market morality is in any way acceptable and so I think David also thought that the the sort of the Corbyn project helped to expand the, the the public imagination in some way and that was allied with his project as well. So how did David then take the election loss? He was such an optimist. It's hard to imagine him despairing. And also, obviously, you know, he was always aware that the, you know, the horizon of change needed to be much broader than just a focus on the Labour Party. Yeah, so, um, I mean, in my first conversations with him about it in the in the days afterwards, he was, you know, he was more of being a supportive friend than expecting than expressing his own sort of uh, political views about it. You know, shall we go to the cinema or do you want to have dinner or, you know, something nice like that. Um, uh, I mean, I think also, you know, he he has a very, you know, long view of history. It's not, you know, it, it's not all or nothing based on on, uh, on one election. So that, you know, he could, he could, um, he could have that. I mean, of course, he was upset. I mean, we uh, we all were, but he also set about trying to understand, um, in his own in his his own way, you know, what what were the things that were at play, and and he you know he would he had this fantastic. I think part of the reason he was such an amazing analyst of things is he just approached it with this sort of anthropologist's naivety. He sort of look at the things that everybody just assumed were the case and be like, hold on, but why is this thing like this? And he'd be like, oh, yeah, it's actually this. And, as, and he, you know, I've never met somebody who could have so many moments where he says like, oh, yeah, maybe it's like this. And you're like, oh, yeah, no, that that's it, actually. It's, And I remember after the election, he had, you know, he had the, he wrote this piece for the, the New York Review, Review of Books, which had these two really good insights um, in it that I you know, haven't really seen elsewhere. One was that the the emerging um, uh, the emerging uh, making of the 
working class in the UK was the caring classes, and he you know he was the, he he saw this revolt of the working of the of the caring classes going on, but he saw that the Labour Party contained both the caring classes and a big section of the professional managerial classes who are the immediate class antagonist for the caring classes. So, you know, that means the administrator who's in charge of the cleaning contracts, that sort of the people who, who don't actually need to be doing that job, but they're making life more difficult for the people who do the who do the caring work. And that they were both contained in the same party and he thought that the kind of continuity remain, hard remain thing was basically a professional managerial class push. And I thought that was a very good, that was a very good assessment. And then the other one was um, uh, was about so-called centrists. And, you know, what, what is, you know, why are they so um, vociferous against, uh, against the left? And his assessment was that um, most of these, you know, most of the prominent centrists in the in the media or politics, you know, they were leftists when they were young. You know, when they were, you know, but, you know, m- m- many of them were, you know, actually in in organised settlers and little Trotskyist groupings and all the rest of it. I mean, um, uh, and but they were, you know, in in the in their phrase, you know, mugged by reality, and and gave everything up, and the the threat to them of something happening to their left is not that what's happening to their left is wrong, but it's saying maybe you didn't need to go along with all the privatisation and the illegal wars and the, the giveaways to the rich. I mean, and he had this phrase, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there should be some, uh, you know, some reckoning for us. And, and, and you can see that emotional response in, um, uh, in some of that. Anyway, that was just, you know, a few of the things that he was talking about afterwards. You guys have obviously talked a lot since then. So where did he think the left in the UK should be going next in terms of organising? So, I mean, obviously, David liked... I mean, he, re- he really liked direct action because um, be- because it was it was living as if you were already free. That was, that, you know, that was his thing. And, and um, you know, people are very... Uh, People can be very skeptical about the value of creating little little bursts and zones of of freedom if they aren't given institutional form. But you know the thing is they do add up. You know I, I don't think that you know without Occupy happening in the way in which it did, and then the other uh, anti-austerity and and student movement protests and all of that happening at the same time, we wouldn't have got the 2015 uprising of Corbynism, at least not in that form and not with some of it, some of its power. Of course, it brought in together lots of different, uh, lots of different elements, but that was, um, that was part of it. So, I mean, obviously he thought that all of that should, uh, all of that should continue. Um, but it was just a continuation of what his, you know, his politics were. He, he was passionately thought that people should be organised, that, um, that, that workers especially, need to be organized but he also he, he was he in you know recently talking quite a lot trying to shift the ideas of production and consumption away towards the ideas of of care and freedom and i think especially with the pandemic and all of that uh, all of that going on and what it's revealed about what it you know what work really is 
you know, he used to say, um, you know, he used to say it so much as maybe even a cliche now, but he's, he said, you know, you make a cup once, you wash a cup a thousand times. Most work isn't production. It's, um, you know, he would say keeping things the same. But um, so he had this idea that, you know, we should think about care, uh, about work being care or the you know work that needs to be done being care. And what does it produce? Freedom. So, you know, why is it, you know, why is it that you look after somebody? Why is it that you uh, go to work on, say, the London Underground? It's to provide freedom for other people to move around. Those, those are the vectors rather than um, production and consumption. And I, I mean, the other things he was thinking about a lot um, with the response to the pandemic and the lockdown was, you know, he saw you know in the economy inverted commas was stopped except of course he's like well of course the economy hasn't stopped you know the the process of people of organizing food and production and shelter and health and support and all the rest of it is still going on and loads of other types of things are going on much more you know there are some types of care and support and so on that are happening more than were happening before but there are certain types of activity um, and you know a lot of these fall into the kind of bullshit jobs area that did shut down and you know one thing that he was clearly opposed to was the straightforward return to to what came before and he had this um you know nice phrase about you know what was driving the pull to get people straight back into high-rise offices as quickly as you can he says the alliance between bullshit jobs and batshit construction and uh so, yeah, there were loads of avenues that, that he was exploring and that were open and that he was thinking about that, that should help all of us in, um, uh, you know, in thinking what we should do next. I mean, one thing that he would have been absolutely 100 percent there on the front line is, is, you know, if and when there is the wave of evictions caused by the ending of the evictions ban, um, which is due in the UK in a couple of weeks. I mean, he would have been absolutely there. Um, uh, on the front line organising um, with people to, to fight evictions and assert, you know, a basic humanity and a basic right for people to to have a home and to have housing, have security and not have the 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 stress of being turfed, stress and uncertainty being turfed down the streets and for what? David always talked about playfulness and challenging our conceptions of what was possible and what was normal and what was true. We're in a moment of such radical contingency today where so many of our preconceptions about how the economy is supposed to work are being challenged. How do you think that David would have thought we should have been reimagining the world during this moment? I think there were, you know, there are three huge things that, you know, that appear over and over again um, in his work. I mean, so obviously the first one is debt and the debt crisis and how it plays out i mean he he was absolutely crystal clear you know debt is a function of power and we're about to see that again very very strongly and uh with the in the post corona crisis world and uh, i think reimagining that would be you know would be right at the forefront of uh of his thinking and not just his thinking I mean, this is the fantastic thing about him as a as a scholar and an intellectual i mean 
he's he's practically engaged with all of the things that he that he's thinking about. I mean, his his thinking is doing, and his doing is thinking. And he's not privileging um, he's not privileging one over the other. He's he's doing both together, and they're learning from each other. But you know, debt debt resistance and the, across the whole range of debt resistance, debt resistance from countries in the global south, debt resistance from uh, from from tenants, debt resistance from ordinary workers, but also the idea that the debt that we have absolutely must be paid to the most powerful people, to financial uh, financial capital, and he, you know, that would have been at the forefront. He has loads of work, and and I encourage people to look at that. the The other two big things would be on work itself. What is the work that needs to be done? And you know what is what is we're trying to undermine the the moral imperative to endlessly work for no for no purpose. Um, of course, lots of work needs to be done, and it's not like people will be idle and have nothing that can uh, that can feed their imagination or their interests um, or, or their their hopes and aspirations. But the sort of drudgery, you know, you can see this already. The the calls for a four day week have expanded dramatically the polling in the UK shows it's it's overwhelmingly popular and I think breaking down some of that taboo around uh, how hard in inverted commas um, uh, people should work especially when according to polling a really large number of people don't think that their work adds any value to to humanity but really David was quite sceptical about um, the ability for the state to intervene really in work because it would require an enormous coercive bureaucracy to manage it. So there, you know, the organising that he saw, I think, was really through an empowered labour movement. Of course, you need changes of in the law in order to make it easier for people to organise. And then the final one, I think, is to do with the climate um, and yes, you know he was in, he was involved in um, uh, Extinction Rebellion, not you know not entirely uncritically, but also again conceptually. I, I think that he's got this he's got this great short essay at the end of this this sort of weird little quite academic-y book brought out by Zed Press like ten years ago. I think the book's called Economies of Recycling or something like that. And he's got this short little epilogue at the end, which is the first time I'd heard the, you know, this argument that there is no such thing as production and, and, and consumption, really, or that's not the main thing. The main thing is this, is this process of recycling, uh, reuse, repair. The, those are actually the dominant forms of economic and social activity that we, uh, that we engage in. And it's a weird, you know, it, it's part of our economic imaginary that separates them off. The essay starts with, um, he's asked, uh, have you ever seen a dead someone die? He's in Madagascar where, where, you know, where he did his PhD research and he's asked, have you ever seen anyone die? And he's like, no, of course, I've never seen anyone die. And they're like, wow, that's so weird. Like, what, you've never seen anyone born? You've never seen anyone die? And he's like, no, no, of course not. You know, that, that, that stuff, you know, you keep that away, that's in the hospice or in the hospital or whatever. And they're like, oh, that's so weird. You know, that's part of that's you know that's part of life it's not the ending it's not the beginning it, it's part of the cycle and uh i think um i think starting to see economic activity and the necessary economic activity and starting to measure economic activity not just in output but in in some ways in you know what are 
what are the human things that are created from it? What are the human relationships that are created from it? What And trying to see that form of value, that's essential to... Uh, to to a to, you know to a kind of climate politics that is that is sustainable and also one that doesn't try to basically set people against the planet and say we you know everyone needs to have less stuff and have a have a worse life it's saying no no no, no. I mean this economic system gives most people no stuff and not very good lives and we can easily construct one that is different because this system has been constructed and many other ones have been constructed before and the signs of change are constant and all around. So I think we are at the brink of a reformulation of what work is and what is valuable about it that could really lead to a reformulation of how we organize everything, uh, how, what we think production even is. Uh, you know, production is ultimately the production of people. Uh, production of commodities is a secondary moment which enables us to produce people that we'd like to have around. That's what life is really about.